Landing station, Chasm. Forge, crew of 40. Hello? Four survivors. One distress call. They were killed by their own suits. That means there's 36 corpses walking about this station. If we want to keep breathing, we have exactly one option. None of us have more than 3,000 breaths left. And stop wasting them. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 6 of Who and Company. My name is Brent. And I'm Drew. Our guest this month has a number of television credits to his name, and it's no overstatement to say that some of his episodes of Doctor Who are sure to go down as modern classics. It's Jamie Matheson. We talk about the early days of his writing career, his creation of his own feature film, and of course, Doctor Who. We then move on to ITV's eerie sci-fi series Sapphire and Steel, which ran from 1979 to 1982. We discussed three significant episodes from three of the show's assignments in enough detail that it's fair to say that this podcast contains quite a few Sapphire and Steel spoilers. So sit back, secure your helmets, and check your O2 levels. It's Who and Company's interview with Jamie Matheson. And that's coming up right after this. Our guest today has not only been a postal worker and a stand-up comic, but has written for Being Human, Dirk Gently. He wrote Frequently Asked Questions About Time Travel, and his four episodes of Doctor Who are some of the best regarded from Capaldi's run. Jamie Matheson, welcome to Who and Company. Hello, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And, and it's lovely hearing the kind of, you know, list of everything you've done and going, oh yeah, I did do all that, didn't I? <laughs> And there's some stuff that we left off just for brevity's sake. So that's okay. (laughs) Uh, And actually, speaking of the list of things of your accomplishments, before we move any further, I have to ask, what's it like having your own Wikipedia page? (laughs) Well, I mean, I I would say I did. Did I I start that page myself? I don't think I did start that page myself because there's always that sort of ego test, the ego litmus test of whether you actually – uh, go in yourself and go, I'm going to create it myself. But I think that that appeared without me doing anything. So I felt I wasn't being a complete uh, egotist in that sense. Um, I think I started the Wikipedia page for frequently asked questions about time travel way back when. Um, but yeah, I, and the, pay, the photo for me currently on my Wikipedia page is the most awful photo I've ever seen of myself, which is just one of those real, I'm just waiting for somebody else to go in there with a good photo of me and i don't really want to do it myself because that seems too insecure but every time i look at it i'm like oh god it's it's the worst it really is but there you go that's an insight to my insecurities there well that's fine now now our listeners have uh, a mission uh your mission <laughs> if you choose to accept it yes uh edit the wikipedia page and give jamie matheson a 
different picture. I was going to say more flattering, but no, just go in there and find something different. It doesn't even yeah. have to be a picture of Jamie Matheson. You just no. You know, I, I mean, hold, I mean, the, if they can find a photo of me, you know, one of those ones where you're caught mid blink, anything like that would be better than what's there <laughs> at the moment. I'm so, really yeah. tempted to go back to Wikipedia and uh, <laughs> take a look at this. Yeah. Um, all right. So, I mean, this is going to be a conversation about writing. So uh, just let's just start off with the basic one. When did you start writing or at least when did you start writing and knowing that you could write professionally? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because when you said, when did you start writing? My brain immediately went back really far back. I mean, there's a story I've, I, I think I've told before, but I, it really, I think it kind of goes to a lot of a root, the root of why I do what I do. And it was the fact that when I was a kid, I used to tell my little brother, who's three years younger than me, I would tell him um, bedtime stories, but I would make them up and he would be the hero and it would be, you're in the woods and you find a tree and it's got a door in it. You open the door and there's some stairs leading down and it leads to an underground base and it's full of robots. And he would say, and, th and there's a dinosaur. And I'd say, yes, there is a dinosaur. and You can ride it and it's your pet. And it would just be this sort of fantastical stream of consciousness ramble that I would just be riffing and making up nonsense. But it was the look on his face of kind of wonder and excitement and kind of wanting to know what the next thing in the story was. And I kind of think that's the root of why I do what I do. And it's always trying to get back to that kind of moment of, oh, as I tell somebody an idea, or I pitch an idea in a room and see them go, wow. Um, and obviously you don't get that as much when you're making something for TV. You don't see the audience, but um, you do get an element of that in the, in the job. Um, but yeah, in terms of, I mean, because there was a sort of circuitous route where I, I did uh, stand up for a chunk of time. And there it really tests your... Well, A, your ability to write, B, your idea that you can be funny on stage, that kind of is really tested by a room full of people who aren't laughing um, <laughs> on, a, on a bad night. Um, but I think that that was where I honed a lot of it was was writing, because I think there's, there's um, a pet theory I've got, which I heard Stephen Moffat say something similar the other day, um, which was, if you can hide the intent of your punchline in your feed line. So, you be, I mean, kind of an example would be, um, uh, I just flew in today, boy, my arms are tired, which is a really old, cheesy kind of dad joke. But the, the setup line lets you mislead yourself. The audience allows themselves to picture you getting on a plane, you know, going to an airport, getting on a plane, flying on a passenger jet, and then arriving. All of that is implied. And you are misled by that line. And then the, the punchline is, I've flown like a bird. You do exactly the same with thriller structure. You have an opening premise or a premise there which the audience sees and they mislead themselves. If you've written it well, I mean, there's an example in Oxygen, which isn't, which isn't a great one, where at the beginning they're talking about um, why, the, uh, why the suits are killing everybody and is it a robbery? And they say, well, they're robbing us at the wrong time. This is the least productive we've been in months. In months. And that's the key to the whole thing. The key to the whole thing is you haven't been productive. That's why you're all being killed. And it's hiding the hiding the solution in plain sight. Um, but yeah, so the point being, I think, if you, if you can grasp joke structure and hide the intent of your punchlines, you can also do thrillers. I had a stand-up agent and... She was trying to make her way as a writing agent. So I had an interest in writing. I was writing scripts and saying to her, 
is there any way you could get me work based on these scripts I've shown you? And she got me a gig, or at least she got me in the room and she got my script shown to a director who was directing Catchphrase. I don't know if you have Catchphrase in the US, um, but you do have Family Feuds in the US, which was another show that I wrote for immediately after Catchphrase. So I wrote for the UK version of Family Feuds. But basically the director looked at the jokes that I'd written and said, right, I'm going to give you a, a sort of audition, see if you can write a script for the an episode of this show. So I wrote a monologue for the host, which I packed full of jokes. And, uh, you know, it was a sort of, oh God, it was one of these in- intricately structured monologues for the host, about four or five punchlines in it. And he read this monologue and went, well, if they're all as good as that, we'll be laughing. And I thought, oh, I've just paid a real rod for my back, haven't I? Because he's going to he's going to want every monologue to be that good. But yeah, so I guess that was my that was my first writing gig was writing monologues for a a game show host uh, in a sort of local TV channel here in the UK. Um, And it was a while before I got anything else. But I mean, that was that was a really good boot camp because I had I think they did 21 shows of one particular series and they were shooting sometimes they'd shoot seven shows a day i think i think one particular day they did shoot seven shows and so they just and, and a lot of them they didn't have audiences i think they had they faked the audience for some of it so they kind of had have stock shots of an audience and a guy in a synthesizer playing you know pretend uh, audience applause and audience laughter and what have you um so it meant they could really rattle through all they had to do was have the contestants uh, brought in and out but so seven shows a day and I had to write monologues for the host and gag for after the break and so on. And at the same time I was doing stand up shows. So I'd be driving up and down the motorway doing stand up in various different bits of the country. But by the time I'd done that, by the time I'd finished that series, I thought I can write anything now. Tell us about the movie that you did. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so the deal there was, uh, I basically, I, well, I, I tell you to go even further back. I, I did a raft of meetings with my new agent at the time, still my agent, my writing agent. So I went, I went around all the uh, TV production houses in London and uh, they, they'd read very uh, a spec script of mine. And so many of the meetings said to me, Oh, this TV spec script you've, you've written uh, reads like a film script. Have you got any film scripts? And also this TV spec script you've written, the budget's quite high. Um, And so I went away thinking, right, I need to come up with a low budget. And they also said it was very high concept. So in my head, I had rattling around high concept, low budget film. And that was that was what I went away from these meetings with. That was what they wanted from me. And I'd had this idea, which, as I I mentioned, broadly based on the... um, Back to the Future 2 idea where Marty McFly is trying to avoid the version of Marty McFly from the first film where he's crawling in the rafters above the enchantment under the sea dance. And I thought, could you do a farce? Could you do a farce structure where it's instead of somebody wandering into one room and going, you can't go in that room, darling, the vicar's in there. Instead of that, it's you can't go in there. We're in there from half an hour ago. And if we meet each other, it'll cause a paradox and the universe will explode. And we can't go in there because we're already hiding in that cupboard from two hours ago. And so I thought there's got to be a way to do a real clever kind of puzzle box structure where 
you're following one group of people, but then it starts looping back on itself. Um, so I wrote the script and my agent sent it around various people and no one was interested. And I think eventually a couple of producers got interested. I think loads of people, you know, passed on it. A couple of, you only need one person to get interested and fund you to make the film, but a couple of people got interested. We got a director interested, Gareth Karavik. I think the fact that he was represented by my agent as well also helped. Um, I did a rewrite on it. And then that rewrite really got people interested. And we actually had Simon Pegg's expressing an interest at one point. And um, we had, weirdly, we had Matt Lucas come in and read for it. But anyway, at one point, it looked like it was going to be Simon Pegg and Matt Lucas as two of the, the actors in it. So it was just like insane that this was going to happen. And as a result of those names circling it, we got uh, half our funding from the BBC approved. And then at that point, Simon Pegg and Matt Lucas dropped out for various uh, scheduling reasons. And then it was like, oh, no, we've lost that. And I think at another, yeah, at another point, we had Harvey Weinstein was going to produce it and he dropped out and so we had half of half of our funding missing and eventually hbo films came on board so it was half hbo films and half uh bbc and we sh and, and, and the casting eventually was as it was which was uh chris o'dowd mark wooden and dean ennis kelly as the three leads and the girl was played by anna farris from the scary movie series uh also mrs chris chris pratt which is at the time was irrelevant because Chris Pratt was an unknown. I don't even know she was married to Chris Pratt at that point. Anyway, um, so yeah, so it, 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 it wasn't, um, I mean, there was, there was an aspect to it which, in hindsight, was, um, you know, makes me grind my teeth a little bit, which was I was new to the whole industry. I didn't realise that there are people in Hollywood whose job it is to give notes on scripts. That's all they have to do. You give them a script, they'll find problems with it. Even if the script is perfect, they will find something to change in it. Nobody told me this. Nobody told me that those notes would continue to come forever. You will never please them. So I was being trying to be the good writer, and I was rewriting it as quickly as I could and delivering a new draft, literally like 48-hour turnaround on these scripts. And then I'd get a new set of notes a few days later. And so I'd do a rewrite. And then I'd get a new set of notes and it just kept happening. And we ended up, I think it was the, the one we ended up shooting was something like draft 34 Ugh. of the script. And obviously <laughs> I'm not deliberately making the script worse, but every little tiny change you do, it's shifting from the original intent a little bit. And so the final thing wasn't as good as it could have been. And I wasn't as happy with it as I wish I was, you know, and it was, um, you know, one of those real regrets. And the other aspect of it, which was um, really irritating, was that the uh, production company, I think it was called Picture House, which was HBO's films, film arm, folded halfway through post-production of our film. So it kind of became an orphan film with nobody really pushing it. Um, and it, it was released probably maybe two or three years after we finished shooting, you know what I mean? It was like a long gap after us finished shooting it before they released it. And there was zero publicity for it. And it literally was in the cinema for a week because contractually it had to be, and then it was gone. And so it was a bit like, it felt like I'd made a film, but not, it was one of those real odd. Did I make a film? Did that really happen? 
but ultimately in the wake of that i got a career i got my agent i could say i'd made a film and uh yeah as i say toby woodhouse either saw it or read it and it helped me get the uh, the gig writing for being human so you know i i owe i owe it my career in a lot of ways that's brilliant that's brilliant yeah it's uh it's called frequently asked questions about time travel and you can find it right now actually on amazon prime streaming oh is it oh that's interesting yeah how did you get to writing for Doctor Who? Ah, oh, it's a long... I mean, the, the, the kind of... I suppose the, the, there were a few points along the way. Because I think that the, the other thing about writing for Doctor Who, because people say, how do you get to write for Doctor Who? I think even if you're a really good writer, I think it would be a very hard sell for someone at the BBC to persuade the people in charge, take a risk on this guy. It's almost like you've got to have a track record of some sort so that people will go oh, he wrote for four years on this thing, or he was a, a showrunner on this, to show that you know the business and to show that you can deliver the goods. Um, with me, my sort of apprenticeship was being human, and I got a gig on that because the creator, Toby Whithouse, he, he, I think he either read the script for Frequently Asked Questions about time travel or saw it. Um, I mean, that's a big chunk we've missed out there, but anyway didn't know whether I could do drama. He knew I could do jokes off the back of that, but he didn't know whether I could do the dramatic aspect of being human. So I didn't get a gig for the first season. And then between the first season and the second season, he read a spec script of mine that was floating around uh, the TV companies in the UK that didn't have a joke in it. I'd written something specifically very sort of dark. Um, it was a sort of uh, fantasy series in the mold, really, I suppose, of X-Men. It was that kind of you know, troubled youths with superpowers. Um, but he really liked it. And, and off the back of that, I got a gig doing Being Human. And I did well on Being Human in the, in the respect that I was the longest serving writer other than Toby Whithouse. He did burn through a lot of writers or, or writers would deliver scripts that weren't quite up to snuff and he, he wouldn't invite them back the next year. But I did four years straight on that from when I started to when, it, to when the show was cancelled. Um, which is, you know, a great thing to have on the CV. And in terms of getting in the room with Stephen Moffat, my agent managed to get uh, a script through to him that he liked, another spec script. Got me in the room with him. I pitched him four ideas, and he didn't like any of them. Or Ultimately, I failed in the interview, and so I didn't get the gig. And then I think three years later, Stephen Moffat's wife, Sue Virtue, who is a producer on Sherlock, read another spec script of mine and said, Stephen, you really need to read this. Stephen read it again, got me in the room again, and one of the pitches I did there turned into Flatline. Uh, Jamie, uh, at the time of recording, we were nine episodes into season 10, and I have to say, personally, my favorite this year so far is still Oxygen. And that brings me to my first question to you. Uh, one thing that I've noticed about your writing that sets it apart from most other writers of the show is that you really give a voice to your characters. Um, normally in Doctor Who, you're interested in the Doctor and his companion, of course, but the secondary and tertiary characters either work or they don't. And I find that your writing makes them more human. Um, for instance, that opening scene where the two members, crew members are outside, they get killed. It's very easy just to let them be a couple of crew members that are killed, but you add that one line of dialogue where she says, oh, you know, when this is all over, I want to have a baby. And that instantly makes them human and become real people. So in that vein, are, are you the type of writer that creates a big backstory for each character, or do you base them on people you know, or, or what? 
Um, well, thank you for that. And I've got to say, I like the way you focus on that because the I think the other characters in Oxygen did get short shrift in the edit and they, they are a bit uh, flat. You know, the rest of them aren't, aren't the most well-developed bunch. So I like the way you focused on the two at the beginning, uh, which is very... Um, very nicely what would you what would we say political politically uh, nice of you to see that um i don't i don't invent massive backstories no and i think it's 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 tricky because i've had situations both in in oxygen and in flatline where you enrich the characters and you have scenes where they they have nice characterful beats and then it gets cut in the edit and you end up kind of crying into your beer going oh you know because of the stuff that's important is that well, in terms of making the plot function is the A to B to C, you know, what's the monster doing? How are we getting away from the monster and so on? So the stuff where you have, you know, quiet character moments between uh, your secondary characters is the stuff that always goes, which is heartbreaking for writers a lot of the time. Um, but I think it, it, it's kind of important to try and make it so that, you know, your, your disposable victims of the week, you care about them before they become victims of the week. Because otherwise, you know, it, it, it just just become a bit, oh, that guy's died. What was his name again? I didn't really hear him say anything. Um, and, and I mean, it's almost like the kind of um, the kind of apex of that is the beginning of Oxygen in a way, because I sort of really wanted to imbue the first victim of these uh, the space zombies with as much character as I could, as quickly as I could. I mean, Stephen's very good at doing that. Stephen will have a couple of lines from a character and you'll go, I really know who this person is and I really like them. You know, he did it so deftly. And that was my attempt to do that and go, right, I know I'm going to kill this woman. I want to make her, you know, believable and, and three-dimensional. And, and also the whole business with that that scene was to try and do as many little uh, gags uh, of, of kind of, I think of them as... Um, what you didn't realize was this. That's the moment. That's what I, I tend to think of them in my own work where, you know, what you didn't realize was her radio doesn't work. And what you didn't realize was those corpses we've just seen floating through space are the monsters of the week. And what the guy opening the, uh, the uh, airlock doesn't realize is that his wife is dying behind it. So there's lots of moments like that in the, in the opening uh, thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, 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 if you didn't, if you don't do that, if you don't add, some or attempt to add some sort of depth to characters their deaths mean less which makes me sound a very sadistic writer but you know it, it, in in the terms of doctor who it's making it so that the deaths are uh more of a they land with more heft kind of thing mm -hmm. so yeah it sort of I puts hope you that, in I the position that. of being the monster of the week it's you with that episode in particular absolutely yes. i think i i tweeted out to you uh, that I agreed with an earlier statement you had made that, yes, you are horrible. Um. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, because I, I think, that, yeah, I mean, I think some people who'd seen the early cuts of the, the episode were going, they liked it, but it was horrible. And I think it, it kind of, you know, and I, and I took that as a compliment. But yeah, I think, you know, it, 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 I think the the core idea of Oxygen, it lends itself to just pushing as far as you can with that whole aspect of it of you know this is going to be brutal and if you, if you if you've got an idea that lends itself to that go for it and that was very much my uh, my intent and i think we we kind of pulled it off um yeah i i, I think because you know and it, I, I was watching it um and obviously i knew what most of the things that were going to happen on screen uh, there was only one surprise which was uh something that uh 
the director uh, Charles Palmer put in, which was the the dead face of the uh, the actor that played uh, Tasker peering through the porthole in the door, which was the sort of like moment of you know I'm watching everything going. I know what's going to happen, and I saw that and went, <gasps> and I thought, well, if that's got me like that, the rest of this episode must be horrible for people who've got no idea what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I uh, I think it did uh, it did succeed. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's the job of the writer. If you're writing something that's horrific, you're the one that's torturing the characters. Ultimately, uh, I did have people who were quite upset by the you know, the ringer I put everybody through, the, the fact that I made the doctor blind and all that kind of thing um, was quite upsetting for some people. Which was your idea, correct? The the blindness. It was yes. Um, I mean, the the deal there was. I just thought. Because I I hate cheats. I in in terms of plot, I hate you know something happening that doesn't uh, you know something's been set up as a big deal and then it's just brushed aside. It it just grinds my gears a bit. And that and that was one of those situations where the whole idea of space as being lethal had been set up as a big deal, and then the Doctor survives it. And you think, well, he's got to pay then, otherwise this means nothing otherwise it's just an empty threat that we're throwing out there so i thought well what's the biggest deal that can happen to him without utterly incapacitating him and i thought well i'll make him blind because the doctor's so smart it's going to be fun seeing him still save the day even though he can't see um so i came up with that and i I did i think i've said already but I, i did think that stephen moffat would read it and go no you've gone too far we can't possibly do that uh you know we're gonna have to put something else in there but instead he went the other way and went i love this we were wondering what we were going to do for our mid-season sort of uh uh event and this is perfect so uh, so he ran with it for you know two episodes absolutely so with the sort of the moffat era kind of coming to a close what are you working on now um i've got a few th- i mean it's, it's always the case you can't really talk about uh but i think i have mentioned it in interview uh in, in doctor Who magazine so i can kind of talk about it to a degree but i've got three projects uh on the go any one of which potentially i could end up showrunner on uh which is an embarrassment of riches in one sense but at the same in the same way the way this business is none of them could end up working. So, you know, I might end up being showrunner of nothing. Um, but it's a quite a nice position to be in, and it's it's a lovely sort of um, acknowledgement that I've I've moved up a notch and that that is now seen as a viable thing, uh, whereas it certainly wasn't before I started working on Doctor Who. And it helps that, you know, three of the four episodes I've done have been so well-received. So uh, that's good. But, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of lots of other irons in the fire i've always got you know two or three spec scripts half written that i'm excited about that are bubbling in the background i I never stop writing spec scripts even when i I, I wrote a piece about it on my site uh last month but it's there's something about just the fact of nobody's telling me to do it nobody's paying me to do it i haven't got anybody giving me notes on it i'm just making the making a universe up and i'm making characters up that i find exciting it's like the purest version of what i do uh, so I've always got one of those going in the background somewhere, which and they always they always end up either getting me work or selling in some way. So it, it, it never feels like a waste of time, you know, that they're always working for me in some respect. 
Um, so yeah, I'm I'm busy. I've got I've got a lot of things on. All irregularities will be handled by the forces controlling each dimension. Transuranic heavy elements may not be used where there is life. Medium atomic weights are available. Gold, lead, copper, jet, diamond, radium, sapphire, silver and steel. Sapphire and steel have been assigned. So, Jamie, one of the things that uh, we like to do on this podcast is to not only talk to our guests about Doctor Who, but also to let them talk about one of their favorite shows of the past that they love. So why don't you tell us what show you chose to talk about and why you chose it? Wouldn't it be lovely if I just threw a curveball and hit you with something you hadn't been met? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I want to talk about the Hair Bear Bunch. I want to talk about... Oh, the know, Hair Bear Bunch. <laughs> I haven't thought about those in years. <laughs> yeah, it's got it. That influenced me massively as a child. Um, no, Sapphire and Steel, which... Because um, just a, a little bit of background to this. Um, I was traumatized by Doctor Who when I was six, and I saw Terror of the Zygons... And I went and hid behind the sofa and, and missed, you know, most of the, the old Doctor Who. But there were shows that I did watch of that era. Uh, and I probably the top three would be Sapphire and Steel, Blake Seven and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Those were just massive, massive shows in my head as a child. Um, and Sapphire and Steel kind of rewatching it now. And, you know, I, I suppose, the, you know, there may be people listening to this who've never watched Sapphire and Steel. Uh, which is probably quite true. Probably a lot of people listening to this have never watched it because it was, when was it? 1979, 1980. So a long time ago and uh, a sort of potted version of it. You've got uh, David McCallum, formerly uh, from the Men From Uncle, uh, Joanna Lumley, formerly of the New Avengers, probably best known now as Patsy from Absolutely Fabulous, playing a very different character. But the pair of them were... Um, ill-defined time agents in a very vague, nebulous way called Sapphire and Steel who were brought in, sent by some vague, nebulous force which you never fully understood to deal with problems with time. And these things, the, the problems that they could deal with were usually very scary, usually sinister, usually bizarre, and usually very cheap. Uh, you know, in this sort of wobbling, <laughs> in a wobbling set with, uh, you know, plummy actors, uh, repertory actors. But yeah, I mean, and it was brilliant. And, and I think a lot of the aspects of Sapphire and Steel that worked, you can trace a direct line through, certainly in my stuff. And I think, you know, Doctor Who, I wouldn't say it was a debt, but you can see the lineage in there. You can see uh, aspects of it you th- that you think out that feels like a moffat idea you know there's a lot of that in there um i mean I, I would recommend anybody who's not watched any of it stop this podcast go and watch a bit of it and then come back because we're going to spoil it i'm sure and if you don't uh, you know you, you'll, you'll have you'll have concepts spoiled if you don't do that so yes that's that's my 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 view of it as a child i was trying to describe sapphire and steel to uh, a patron at the library today and I told them, in many ways, it felt like Doctor Who meets the X-Files 
but without the humor. <laughs> yeah, there, there aren't many jokes, that's for sure. They're really, um, it's really not a funny show. No, no, not it's, at all. No, the only, uh, the only one that stands out to me is uh, in the railway station episode, and uh, Sapphire says, uh, no, Steele says, well, where did he go? She said, he's waiting. He said, where? She said, in the waiting room. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That's probably it's the like, only joke on there. <laughs> yeah. The, the Except that then the room is... actually says waiting room on it, yeah, like immediately yeah. following. Yes, yeah. It's the uh, one joke in like eight hours of viewing, you know, you've got to wait for. Um, but no, it, it, I think there's there's a lot of aspects of it that I found and still do find fascinating. I mean, the, the, there's one bit of it which I, I actually wrote this down because I wanted to talk about it. And it's the the opening credits. And there was something that struck me about the opening credits and the, the way that they're they're framed, um, because there's a there's a, a documentary which is on YouTube, uh, which is well worth checking out. Um, I think it's called Marking Time or something like that. But it's it's basically you know an hour's documentary of behind the scenes on Sapphire and Steel. And one of the producers is talking about writing the opening bit of dialogue for the credits, and he said it took him a week. And I can kind of see that because there's something about it that's so nicely crafted but anyway the, the opening line is um all irregularities will be handled by the forces controlling each dimension now i love that because it begs a question which is there are other dimensions and there are forces that control them so presumably the dimension we're in is controlled by force. it's that thing of the things that they don't say that then raise questions in your head um and the next line transuranic heavy elements may not be used where there is life which implies that there are dimensions where there is there aren't that life hasn't evolved presumably where these missions still go on and that begs questions like well what do those missions look like and do they bother the agents in question do they bother looking like humans when they go to these worlds these dimensions where there isn't life but it's just in those two lines there are massive things implied. And I, I love that about all of Sapphire and Steel in the, there'll occasionally be a throwaway line and you'll go, oh, so that implies this. Like in, in the world, the Second World War, the World War, um, the railway station one, there's a certain point where Sapphire has to explain to Steel about the First World War. And it's plain that Steel hasn't got a clue about it. And you think, you really don't know, how much do you know of human history? And why wouldn't you know that? And it just makes them seem so divorced from humanity, the fact that they don't even know that. That's an aspect of it that I love, the gaps and the kind of implications that a lot of it makes. A lot of the program seems to be the audience needs to write in their own sort of headcanon. Yes. Not, not to make it sense of it, because I feel like even without the information that it... it it doesn't give you certain information, but it doesn't stop the story from being entertaining. The information it doesn't provide doesn't hamper the story in any way. No, no. And because I, I mean, I was thinking one thing I have thought about Sapphire and Steel often is that if it was made today, if, you know, Sapphire and Steel didn't exist and somebody pitched it, the amount of notes that you would get for like, oh, well, can we see the base that they set off from? And can we see their commanding officer? And can we learn about, you know, the, the, the world that they're in, that they come from to do the mission? And, can, you know, all the stuff that's good about it in, in the fact that it's not there and it's not nailed down. 
you can imagine executives biting their fingernails and going, I want this, you know, quantified. I want to know these things because otherwise the audience will get confused and otherwise the audience will be worried because they won't know this stuff. But that's the joy of it. The joy of it is what you don't know. Speaking of the audience, I got to ask, who do you think this show is for? <laughs> well, I think that I'm right in saying that the first adventure, which is the one with the uh, Ring of Ring of Roses and the, the parents disappearing, was written as a children's show. And then I think it got moved in the schedules. And they were like, oh, we can be more adult now. So it's almost like a show that began as one thing and then changed. And you can kind of feel it because the second one is brutal. I mean, the first one is still scary, but the, the second one is a lot more kind of adult in theme, I think. Um, so it, it feels a bit like a show that shifted its audience, if that makes sense. But yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. No, I, th I think it answers it perfectly. Uh, and yeah. I, and I, I agree with you, having not looked at schedule shifting uh, in the history of the program, just the difference between those first two stories is quite dramatic. Though I will say, I found the first assignment very frightening. Like, yes. The just the start of the young boy sitting at his dining room table, surrounded by clocks that are slowly going out. Yes. And there's like moments where it's just quiet with a single ticking clock, and then it's just completely quiet. And then there are horrific sounds, and then the story like starts. And it's really an unnerving program because I I first watched it, I, I don't know, three or four years ago. I'm I'm very new to this program. I was alone in the house. There's no one in. All the lights are out. And I'm like, nope, I'm turning on a light. I'm <laughs> turning on a light. This is creeping me out just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the, I saw that when I would have been nine or ten. And my brother was seven. And the whole idea of if you sing Ring a Ring of Roses, the wall will open up and a plague-ridden guy will shuffle towards you. Cheers blew our minds and we were just so traumatized by it to the point where we were singing ring a ring of roses at each other and you know going no don't sing it don't see <laughs> you know all that was going on in, in our bedrooms kind of thing um but yeah it, it's it is unnerving and and there's another aspect to it which i i'm i mean i'm i'm not i'm 100 familiar with all of it but i know it definitely happens in the second one in the sense that they sacrifice tully to appease the time force. So they basically sacrifice a human to save the day. Yeah. And it's almost done like, yes, this is how we need to fix this problem by killing this guy. And they do it. And you just go, wow, this is, this is the fact that that, that is allowed within your moral compass that you, you know, it's, it's like, that's the best you can hope for is a score draw where someone dies is it's just fascinating and, and kind of, you know, it shouldn't work. The fact that the heroes can kind of cavalierly do that. But yeah, they get away with it. And, and I think that there's something about the whole thing of humans' lives are secondary. The main thing is we're here to fix the time leak and stop time from screwing up. Um, but we can kill if we need to. We can, humans can die if, if that is what's needed to happen. It is fascinating. At the time of recording, that message that, that Sapphire and Steer is presenting rings, uh, I don't want to say truer, but it's certainly in a different light when considering what is happening with Doctor Who in that they, that specific argument, is it worth a single life to save you know, a larger time, uh, they tackle that same problem. I mean, I know a lot of shows tackle that problem. You know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few yes. is, is a problem that can be thrown 
anywhere. And it's, it's, it's a moral dilemma. But it, I, I think it always felt to me, and I don't know whether this is almost like my own uh, false memory of it, because I don't know whether they state it this specifically, but it, it, it's the idea that you get the feeling with Sapphire and Steel that they don't really care about humans. You know, there, there's occasions when they'll be like, yeah, we're, we're looking out for you and we're trying to save you. But you kind of, when push comes to shove, it's like, well, they're not really that important, especially Steel. Steel's just yeah. a really pragmatic kind of, yeah, who cares? You know, we, we're here to, to do our job and then leave. If people die along the way, what what are we going to do about it? You know, um, which is fascinating for a, for a hero and fascinating for science fiction as well. But, you know, what is he? What is he that he doesn't give a damn about humans? What are they exactly? Um, well, before I forget, there was there was something that struck me about them, what they reminded me of. Um, and I don't know if this is something which you guys are familiar with. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing uh, Drew will because I've, I've seen a big box of boxes of comics behind him. But uh, the Endless from the Sandman series. Yeah. In the sen- in the sense that uh, Neil Gaiman invented a whole new mythology that's behind every other mythology. It's a bit like that with the elements that Sapphire and Steel are part of. This idea that it's a big, vague mythology that is just there behind everything, because they're elements, after all, you know, that everything is created from. Um, I just found there was a sort of a similarity there, because it's, it's, it's not like... Sometimes with science fiction and fantasy, it's go. You go. Oh, we're going to do our spin on vampires, or we're going to do our spin on werewolves. This is. I've invented a new mythology, and it's based around elements. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which is a new thing. Um, but that's what it reminded me of. I'm like Drew. I found out about this show about four or five years ago from another podcast, and so I watched them all. And uh, it's very atmospheric, creepy as hell. I, I turned it on. I was like, "Hey, it's Ducky from NCIS." <laughs> and, yeah, of course, yes. Yeah, but when we asked you uh, about your show, we asked um, also which episodes you'd like for us to watch, and you picked Assignment One, Episode One, Assignment yes. Two, Episode Two, and Assignment Four, Episode Three. So, yes. why those? Why those three episodes in particular? Um, well, I think the first one it does a really nice job of setting up. Uh, the universe because i i think my my recollection of it was that they were a little vaguer than they actually are about what they do because in the first one they, they're very clear about there is a corridor called time and things you know move along this corridor and it's like okay and it's your job to stop them from getting out and, and you know they use they use uh, ghosts what we perceive as ghosts aren't really ghosts it's these forces breaking through so it's almost like a kind of an alternative explanation for ghosts is that the, the things within the time corridor are trying to break through and we are agents that it had stopped. And I like the fact that that's that clear kind of mission statement is there in episode one. But I think it does a lot of other nice things in the first episode, which are very, um, you know, I mean, the, the kind of all that, as I say, the business of the guy coming through the wall and all that. And also the, the kind of parents disappearing. The kids, that's like a massive, scary thing. The idea that your parents can't save you, they're gone. Whatever this thing is, it's taken them. That's just like primal. That's a real primal fear thing they're dealing with there. Um, with the uh, the second adventure, I mean, the second adventure, a lot of people say is the best one. I mean, it's a kind of argument between whether or not the uh, the railway one is the best one or the, the man with no face is the best one. Um, but I sort of, you know, I, I did one, obviously one episode from each. Um, but I can't, I'm, I'm sort of, I, want, I think I picked that one because 
I'm just because I watched the whole episode, the whole series again of that. So I watched the whole railway one again. But I, I think that was one I picked because it ends. Oh yeah, that's right. It ends with Steel uh, flying the plane, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I thought was a really lovely use of. It's almost like a kind of radio thing of we've got no money. We've got no money, but we have got the sound effect of a bomber. You know, we have got the sound effect of a Stuka dive bombing, and we've got a pilot's outfit. We can make something work here. And so in one respect, it's a really cheap thing. But in another respect, it's brilliant. And you go, this is really a really nice way to go. You have effectively been possessed by someone who's about to die in a diving plane. Um, but I thought that was that was really nicely handled. And it kind of sets up a lot of the other the stuff that's going to happen in the uh, the episode. And then the third one, the the man with no face. I think I picked that one primarily because it begins with a recap which shows the man with no face. And then when it establishes him later on, you have Sapphire seeing one person and Steel seeing another, which is such a Stephen Moffat idea. I thought I was watching that thinking I can so see him doing something like that, where it's like, what do you see? What do you see, Clara? Or what do you see, Bill? You know, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? Um, And then it ends with the horrific idea of somebody trapped in a photograph and the man with no face is burning it. And it's just such a horrible, horrible kind of idea of, you know, you can't save them. They're burning in that photo. But yeah, I think for those... screaming. And the screaming. Yeah, yeah, totally. But I think for those moments, that's that's why I picked that. No, there there are three just excellent episodes, and as you were when you first sent them to us, I was like, I I remembered the the moment specifically in in those stories, and I'm like, yep, good, awesome. I'll rewatch those, no problem. Yes, yes. there's a it's- moment in episode one the, in the pilot. Um, the boy has uh, just called the police department, but they're obviously on an island, so the police is going to have to get to the docks and get to the boat and ride the boat across where the lake or wherever it is and then get to them and drive up uh he gets off the phone and there's immediately a knock at the door and he's like well yeah. that was quick and he opens the door and they walk in and he goes who are you he goes you asked for help and it's yeah. like oh yeah it wasn't we're the good guys we're here to save yeah. you you asked for help and it's like oh cool and it's like when first seeing that i immediately thought oh you know not knowing what I was about to get into, like, these are the good guys. They're here, the cavalry. They're going to solve the problem, and they're jerks. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, no, Steel's a jerk, and... Sapphire, re- kind of, Sapphire plays the role of, I'm here to comfort you, but it almost feels like she's read it in a book. This yes. is how you comfort a child. You know, I've got... And, and a smile towards the children, it's always a bit like, I've learned how to smile by looking in a mirror. You know, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? Um, yeah. Which makes her almost worse than Steel. Steel <laughs> is always honest, right? Like he's yeah. always honest. He's up front, and she, and she almost play. I don't want to say she plays this kid, but you can tell that this is a young man who is far more interested in Sapphire than he is in Steel. Uh, and her, yeah. the way she can, the fluid way she can change herself. Like he is, he's smitten. Like right off the bat. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like there's that weird thing which she, I don't think she ever does again when she changes her, her clothes about three times. And you're thinking, now, on one, in one respect, it's, oh, I'm, I'm sort of uh, showing that I'm uh, different. I'm showing that I'm sort of weird and alien and I can do these things. And in another respect, it's almost, as you say, trying to play the kid. It's like, you know, 
look, we can be friends. I can dress up. I can do these things. Um, and in other respects, it's just, you know, a bit of fun that never happens again. <laughs> None, nowhere else in the series does she do anything like that. So it's almost like the show trying to find its feet a bit uh, with that kind of thing. Sorry, well, so the show doesn't seem to have rules. The characters don't seem to have rules either as to what they can do. Their powers, uh, you know, we know they're agents. They come to fix time. Yes. But the extent of their powers and their abilities, because uh, it doesn't seem like they always reuse the same powers, with the exception of the the Sapphire's ability to fiddle with time a bit. Yeah, so she rewinds. I mean, the the, the, the classic thing about the first adventure is that um, I think in the very first episode, or maybe the first or second episode, where Sapphire rewinds time a little bit for some reason. Um, I think she rewinds it 10 minutes and it's a bit like, you know, I can't do it any further. And it's like, well, why can't you do it a few hours and back to before this ever happened? No, I can't do it that far. And then at the very end of the whole, you know, however many episodes we have, that's exactly what she does to save the day. And you kind of go, oh, but I thought you said you couldn't do that. Oh, we'll just ignore that. We'll just ignore that. That's what you've just done. Um, but yeah, so you've got Sapphire's uh, rewinding time. You've got Steel being able to turn his body to absolute zero um which you know <laughs> for some reason the time agents the time creatures don't like but i think he only does that uh, does he do it in this episode and or that adventure and then maybe one more time and then never again i don't know i don't know but i know what you mean it, it's that thing of a fluid uh skill set depending on what the plot needs isn't it basically yeah yeah absolutely when you watch these as a kid did you did you watch them at home? Did you watch it as a serial? Like, did you? Was it this appointment television for you? I think is what I'm. I'm like yes. something that you definitely made sure you were at. And did they have reruns of the show? I think there were very limited reruns. If there were, I don't because I've, I've actually got the I've got the DVDs, and I think it talks a little bit about that. And um, at the time, there was there was I think there was a um, some sort of strike that screwed it up at some point. So that it wasn't as as um, as as, a, as appointment television as it could have been, you know. So that there were breaks in it where they, I think, they repeated part of a series because there'd been a strike. But yeah, I mean, it, broadly speaking, it was week in week out. You would sit down and you would watch half an hour of Sapphire and Steel, and then wait another week to see the next half an hour. Um, so yeah, that was how it rolled. Um, but yeah, just you know, addicted to it, loved it, and 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 you know, it's the sort of thing that I look at now and go. Of course, it's had an effect. Of course, it has. And I look at the some of the structuring of it and some of the um, the way that, that it plays with things and go, yeah, I've, I've certainly learned things from it. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely owe it a debt in a lot of ways, I think. Is your fandom as such that you would consider writing for uh, Sapphire and Steel if, say, Big Finish got the rights to it again or they tried something like a novelization or is are you good with what exists in the past just kind of as a part of that um i think that it's the sort of thing that if i had an idea that could be a sapphire and steel idea i'd probably think well can i kind of because you know you 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 have as a writer well, I'm, i have ideas all the time i mean some writers don't I was, I, I was talking to another writer and they were going well i've only got so many ideas and it's like really i never stop you know i'm just always thinking of new things but anyway if i had an idea that was a time idea 
I'd be more tempted to think, well, does it have to be a Sapphire and Steel idea? Could it be something else? Because for me, Sapphire and Steel are David McCallum and Joanna Lumley. And it's like, well, do I want to invent some new Sapphire and Steel adventures for radio for, for the sake of argument, David Warner and whoever else they get? And You know what I mean? I, I, I don't know whether I'd want to do that. I'd rather take my time idea and go, right, could that be a Doctor Who idea that you know potentially I could pitch to whoever's show running and you know if that makes sense uh i think that's that's the direction i'd go in much as i love it you know i love it to bits but i don't know whether i'd want to make new bits of it sure i completely understand um well is there anything before we let you go that you want to tell our listeners um i know you've recently launched your blog yeah i've got i, I sort of um i had an old blog that was a bit old in the tooth that was on blogger and i i redesigned it in a new website and that's at uh www dot oh no three w's even like the the proper internets uh jamie matheson.com matheson spelt the weird way uh m-a-t-h-i-e-s-o-n but yeah that's it's got you know a bunch of stuff about doctor who and a, a bunch of things about writing for a living because i think that, that you do get people who ask that question of how do you write for Doctor Who and how can I, I've written something and I want to, you know, write, I want to make an episode of it. Because I think, I think just writing a Doctor Who script and hoping you can get it to Stephen Moffat is folly, really. It's it's not, well, it kind of is. I mean, I think people think that, oh, if I could just get this in front of Stephen Moffat, then he'll, and it's like, well, he won't. And even if it was genius, what's the chances that you've got the skill set to, to survive after he says yeah i need you to rewrite the whole thing you know are you just going to break down and go that took me three years i can't possibly rewrite the whole thing you know or or i've got an idea very similar to that currently in the because i've had that where I'll, I'll have an idea that i think is great and Stephen will go it's very similar to something that you know toby whithouse is doing what else have you got and it's like you've got to be able to go i've got three other ideas you know uh and not break a sweat uh, but yeah, there's lots of lots of things like that about writing. But um, go to my blog, join my uh, join my newsletter. I've got a newsletter thing as well, so that's good fun. But yeah, this has been good fun. I'm, I'm so, I feel a bit like I've dominated and talked too much. But um, people don't want to hear us, Jamie. That that's not <laughs> why anyone tunes in for this. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for listening to me ramble about various things. But yeah, that was a joy, and um, and good luck with all your endeavors, and good luck with the podcast. Thank you again, and uh, thanks for our audience for joining us on Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom, stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixel who. Who and Company can now be found on iheartradio.com, or you can download the podcast directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. You can also contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. See you next month. Well, um... <laughs> wait, autocorrect is fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah. Why? Is, 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 is there a... Um, is it being transcribed at the same time? No, no, no. Um, but we are... Uh, this is a little behind the scenes. We like to text each other in between as to questions we want to ask and which direction we want to move the interview... And okay. uh, I think uh, I'm out of ideas has just been turned into I'm out of nudes. Um, <laughs>
Well, you know, I like I like the idea that there is no autocorrect, and you've also been sending each other nudes. That's the uh, that's for the takeaway I'm, like, I'm getting from that. Like, have you been paying attention to Jamie's interview? No. Here's another one. Click. <laughs> uh, We're gonna edit that part out of the podcast. No, I don't. Um, think, I don't think you should. I think you should leave that in. Uh, I think I'm gonna throw that one in at the end. All right. That's that's. <laughs> I'm fine with that.